Hi, this is Amy Proal with Microbe Minded. What follows is an interview with Gurel Sul. He's a professor of molecular biology and the associate director of the San Diego Center for Systems Biology. His research team integrates quantitative biology approaches with mathematical modeling to study how bacteria behave and communicate. As many of you know, much of the bacteria in the human microbiome persist in communities called biofilms. Bacteria in these dense biofilm communities share resources and often split up roles or functions. For example, more virulent bacteria may help protect the biofilm from the human immune system, while other bacterial species in the same biofilm focus on obtaining nutrients for the community. One of the biggest questions about biofilms is, how do the different bacteria in these communities communicate? They are acting together as a unit so we know they must be sharing information. We've known for over a decade that biofilm bacteria can communicate by a process called quorum sensing. They produce and detect chemical signaling molecules that help them coordinate shared behavior. But recently, Sewell and team noted biofilm collective behavior that could not be explained by this quorum sensing. So they began to search for other modes of biofilm communication. This led to a series of fascinating discoveries. They identified a new form of biofilm bacterial communication ion-channel mediated electrical signaling. This electrical signaling is similar to that used by human neurons to conduct information. So now, let's go ahead and listen to Gurel talk about this electrical signaling in much greater depth. Hi, Amy, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? Thank you very much for doing this. <laughs> sure. My first question is, how did you get interested in this topic and what led you down the road of beginning to investigate this? Um, so we were very interested in sort of uh, trying to understand the uh, higher order uh, sort of organization and behavior in these bacterial communities because, uh, um, you know, uh, even though bacteria are unicellular organisms, uh, right. they're not solitary. Exactly. Uh, and, and so uh, that means that they actually live in these dense communities. And, and uh, those communities appear to have like certain features, like they're very resilient to stress and antibiotics and things like that. And so we're very interested in, in sort of uh, figuring out what type of maybe interesting things were going on inside these these uh, bacterial communities known also as uh, biofilms or mats that you know different people call them different things we call them typically biofilms okay and uh so we we got very interested in in sort of this electrical um uh sort of signaling thing uh well partially because of a couple of reasons so one we we saw that there was some kind of long range metabolic coordination right and, and we were having a hard time understanding how that could uh, sort of how, how cells, how bacteria could communicate uh, so effectively over such long distances because it seemed that uh, sort of a simple diffusion-based mechanism uh, may not be sufficient to, to support this. Right. And um, I, my, my background, I'm actually, a, a, my PhD is in molecular biophysics. Right. And so I, I used to do electrophysiology and, and, and like uh, uh, fruit fly photoreceptors and things like that. So I have sort of a, a background in, in electrophysiology. And, and so um, I, I sort of uh, started wondering whether or not there could be some kind of um, sort of a, a you know, different type of a process involved. And so we started looking at the possibility that, that maybe sort of the charge, because some of the... Um, metabolic uh, components that were very critical, sort of the, the amino acids, the nutrients that were uh -huh. 
uh, very critical for this long-range communication. One of them was, uh, well, the, the most important one appears to be glutamate. Right. And, and glutamate is very interesting because it's also uh, an excitatory amino acid in the brain. Like right. about half of all brain activity is regulated by glutamate. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and uh, one of the things that makes it so important is that uh, glutamate is one of the few amino acids that's charged. And right. so it can't just get in and out of cells on its own because that's got energetically it. unfavorable. So you gotta, you got to have some kind of a proton motive force to actually take up these, these charged amino acids, which means uh, if, you, if you're dealing with a proton motive force, then the memory potential is important. Mm-hmm. And so one by one, we kind of like pursued this, this sort of line of thought. Uh, and then um, uh, we ended up with, with uh, sort of realizing that maybe what we're looking at was sort of some kind of ion channel, uh, you know, kind of purpose or function in, in this process. And, and then uh, we, we looked at, at, you know, when you think of ion channels and, and sort of memory potential things, you, you think about sodium and potassium. Those are the most mm-hmm. sort of commonly uh, uh, sort of utilized ions in, in biological systems. Right. And so we looked at both and we saw that sodium wasn't really doing anything, which wasn't surprising because the Bacillus subtilis, the microorganism that we work with, is not known to have any sort of uh, uh, at least identified sodium channels. Okay. Uh, but we saw that there was a, a lot of beautiful sort of uh, signaling and dynamics going on when we looked at potassium. Mm-hmm. And then we, we, uh, we, we took the, the um, uh, sort of suggested potassium ion channel, we started making mutants and this and that, and, and then one thing led to another, and we realized that actually, uh, you know, these, these bacteria were communicating using potassium ion channels. Uh, in a way, sort of reminiscent of, of what neurons do in the brain with, with sort of action potentials. Yes. And, uh, and then once we, once we uncovered that, then we, we sort of um, realized that if you have these sort of uh, long-range electrical, electrochemical waves propagating through the biofilm, that uh, these waves wouldn't just sort of stop at the edge, but they might propagate a distance. And right. that led us to the uh, cell paper. Yes. Well, we said, what if there's some kind of motile cells nearby? Would they be actually sensing or, or be responding, be affected by these types of uh, signals being emitted by the biofilm. Yeah. And then that turned into sort of a very, uh, what, what was very sort of a fun and very uh, sort of intriguing uh, study. Uh, and then we, we said, okay, so if that's possible, what if there's like a, another biofilm <laughs> further away, mm-hmm. could the two biofilms sort of sense each other and, and interact? And right. then that led us to the, to the science paper about uh, time sharing of, of limited nutrients. Right. No, exactly. I can see that by reading the papers, the progression of the studies you did. You really good methods and the really good, um, you know, really well organized. I was very impressed. Um, It's really cool. So um, I guess another question would be, I'm interested in the redundancy between the way neurons signal and the way you found that the bacteria in these biofilms are signaling. Do you think that it's possible that there are any interaction between, um, you know, human nerve signaling and these microbes, that there could be any kind of, that they can tap into each other in any way? I mean, you know, we don't know. That's, right. that's a short answer, right? Because exactly. no, no one's ever looked at that. We haven't right. looked at that. Uh, so, so the short answer is, I don't know. Um, uh, would it be possible? I, you know, I, I guess it would be possible. I don't know. We, <laughs> we'd have to, we'd have to really look, but, um, I know that sort of, uh, you know, uh, extracellular potassium signals, the sort of potassium ion channel mediated signals are, um, not specific to just neurons. I mean, right. we've shown it now in, 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 even in bacteria, right. But, uh, but it's very important in plants, 
It's mm -hmm. very important that all kinds of other living organisms, uh, right. because you know these these ions, they they they're very generic, meaning they can if you have uh, extracellular tract, any membrane, right? Uh, right, and and so it would not be sort of inconceivable to think that uh, if if a bacteria releases uh, some charged particles, and if there happens to be sort of a a, a um, uh, an excitable cell nearby that's sort of a, maybe a mammalian cell, whatever, that, that it might actually respond to that. I, I don't think that's sort of a um, super crazy, but right now it's, <laughs> yeah. it's unproven, right? Of so, course, right. Yeah. But, but I agree is, with it, you, it not inconceivable. Exactly. Yeah, we, yeah. Cool. Very interesting. What about um, external electromagnetic uh, fields, for example? Do you think mm -hmm. that our devices mm -hmm. or any networks we've set up um, as humans could be affecting these communities? Yeah, that's a very good question. So, so again, I don't know for sure, right? Uh, in terms of our bacteria, but but it is it is uh, it is well known that that um, lots of organisms have uh, magnetoreception. Uh, you know, they can they can even follow sort of electromagnetic fields right. on, on our planet from whales to birds, right? They have electroreception. Uh, exactly. And yeah. and so um, you know, if you can sense the electromagnetic fields of our planet. Um, you know, it, it's it's probably not again sort of a super crazy, and there are actually bacteria known to have sort of small uh, um, uh, particles inside that are sort of sensitive to to magnetic fields. Uh, so that magnetoreception is 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 something that that we know exists in in, in nature. Right. Uh, we know that that um, uh, there are documented cells that that will respond to electrical fields, including bacteria. Right. And so. Um, but how sort of our daily use of electronics and so forth may affect certain processes, that part is, is uh, unclear. Uh, mm -hmm. But at least there's, I think, enough uh, really sort of good work out there that, that shows clearly that, that just like temperature, pressure, and so forth, biological systems are also sensitive to you know, magnetic forces and electro electrical forces. So, right. um, uh, you know, that that's sort of... A, um, I think more or less well established. What we don't know is sort of, uh, you know, whether or not your cell phone is going to yeah. have anything to do with your with your gut microbiome or or things like that, right? So, so those right. are the things that that have not been, I think, at least to my knowledge, not been sort of clearly uh, uh, sort of studied right. potentially, right? Definitely but, um, not, but maybe interesting future research. <laughs> yeah, and, and as I said, there's there's enough evidence, strong evidence out there where we know that, that living organisms are sensitive to these uh, physical uh, sort of external uh, properties. As I said, pressure, temperature, pH, exactly. electrical fields, magnetic fields, that's not a, that's not sort of a, a new concept. So we know that, that cells and, and other organisms can sense those things. Uh, you know, we'll just have to see. We don't, right. like, I don't know if birds sit on electric wires because, you know, it tingles. Right? I don't know. Or, or it's just a, it's <laughs> just a good that, sitting place. There was a study that showed that I think actually a cell phone tower disrupted bird migration or something like that. For example, yeah. So, yeah. so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised, right? So, 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 yeah, something uh, like I that. Said, I think there's enough, enough out there that that would sort of uh, at least, uh, you know, be, be sort of uh, uh, probably good uh, incentive to maybe look at some of those things. Agreed. Okay, very interesting. Um, so I guess um, I could go back into the specifics of what you found, but as a person, I researched the human microbiome, um, just looking at the role of inflammatory disease in the microbiome. Um, how would you dis 
basically, if someone asked you to describe the human microbiome, knowing what you do now, um, how would you explain it? A lot of people tend to um, consider the microbiome, they'll describe it a little like a yogurt commercial, like our friendly friends in our gut, you know, who interact with us. Um, how would you describe it? I, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe I would say that, that the, the human body is sort of really, uh, is sort of an ecological network, right? right? That, that we're sort of actually, uh, uh, you know, existing together with our environment and our environment is not just sort of, you know, whether or not it's cold or rainy outside, but, but within our body, we have countless organisms, not countless, but lots of organisms, right? Yeah. And, and, and bacteria are definitely one of them, but in fact, we have probably even more viruses than we have bacteria. Nobody's right. actually sort of been able to really track down all those things. Yeah, and so exactly. we harbor a lot of organisms, many of them bacteria, and, and especially in our gut. And, and I think it's sort of a, a complex interaction that, that we don't fully understand. I think, uh, you know, there's always, of course, a little bit of hype uh, yeah. with, with these things where we discover something new, everybody gets sort of excited and maybe like a little overexcited. <laughs> but even if, I would say, even if like, 10% of all the stuff out there turns out to be relevant. That's already like a lot. Right? It is. Um, and, yeah. and so um, I would say the, the, the microbiome is sort of a, uh, is sort of a little universe of, of, uh, of an ecological network within our body. And uh, there's, there's things going on between all the bacteria, but, but then there's things going on between the bacteria and our cells, the human cells. Right. And, and we are yet to, to fully appreciate how, how many and, and which parts of those are sort of um, processes that are super critical right. and, and which ones of those uh, are sort of processes that, that are, um, you know, uh, maybe interesting, but maybe not as critical, right? right. Like, yeah. uh, you know, there's, a, there's always these, um, these sort of interesting studies about, um, you know, that the composition of the microbiome. Right is going to be very critical to this process and that process. But we have to remind ourselves that the composition of the microbiome is not like a static thing. Right. Uh, you know, like when I wake up and go to bed, my, my microbiome is probably totally different depending on where I went to dinner, what right. I had, you know, that kind of stuff. So exactly. it can't, to some degree, it can't be super sensitive to those types of changes, right? Because otherwise I would just have dramatic sort of uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, physiological problems throughout the day if my microbiome changes so much and, and right. it's so yeah. important, right? So that wouldn't work. Uh, we also know that you can recover, like you can take antibiotics and it can really flush out a lot of stuff, but then you can very quickly recover your microbiome. True. Um, so so it, it's going to be important to discern which of them have an effect but are not necessarily like super critical and which ones of those are, are actually very important. And, and, and I think... That's, that's the kind of stuff that, that makes it very interesting for the future to sort of see what it, where it leads us. It does. So if, if you were speaking to a researcher who was studying a microbe alone, um, a bacterial species, um, sort of just isolated without looking at the way it persists, let's say, in the human body or microbes around it, do you think that's still... I mean, you can still gain a lot of insight from doing that, but do you think there needs to be a larger push to consider the way the microbe really is in vivo? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, so so in vivo is sort of an interesting term, right? So, yeah. so that that term uh, is appears to be very, very important when you're dealing with sort of uh, uh, you know the, the studies of like uh, cell lines and things like that, uh, where uh, I think that that problems first appear to be very critical when when people would study cell lines and then try to claim things about sort of uh, you know cancer and other things, right? Yeah. Um, 
because the cell line is, is taken out of its natural context. Um, but when you're dealing with bacteria, actually to say what is in vivo is not even very clear to me. Meaning, yeah. you know, when, when you're dealing with sort of, uh, let's say, our organism, Bacillus subtilis, right. um, you have it right now on your eyebrows, on your skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also in your, in your gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the soil. It's, uh, you know, on your tablecloth. If you have some fruits and vegetables in your fridge, it's in there. Right. Um, so which of those is in vivo? Right. Yeah, so no, you're a good a, point. Exactly. And, but but they're all very different conditions, right? Mm-hmm. But those are all places where bacteria can naturally sort of occur. And so um, the, the question of in vivo is sort of a, a blurred and, and fuzzy, I think, misleading or potentially even sort of a mm-hmm. question in the sense that uh, we don't actually know, you know, what to call in vivo. Sure, we can say if, if I isolate a bacteria and I stay in isolation, you know, we, we then have to say this is what we're doing. But yeah. to say... This is the proper context. I'm just sort of uh, putting out there a little bit of a word of caution in the sense that uh, these bacteria uh, are capable of surviving under so many different conditions. And we find them in nature in so many different places, like your gut and mm-hmm. sort of on, on your eyebrow. That's very different conditions, right? Exactly. So, yeah. uh, but both are bacteria naturally occur both places. So, right. you know, so we have to be very careful. But I would say that overall... Um, you know, any good scientist would know that if you're studying a cell, you have to understand the context of the cell, right. meaning the environment of the cell. And if the environment of the cell includes other cells, and those may be the same species or different species, then obviously that is something that needs to be taken into consideration. Right. Um, but but one can sort of uh, still execute, I think, very important studies uh, without being sort of shackled to this sort of uh, vague notion of what is in vivo got it uh, right especially i think nowadays it's actually very important to remind people of this because uh we also as a scientific community are are very concerned and and trying to make sure that our data is reproducible right and that we have reliable results right so that if i do something somebody else can reproduce it and the moment we get into these types of in vivo conditions Mm -hmm. the, the 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 problem that you have is is it's very poorly defined meaning uh you know like your eyebrows might you the, the ph and, and whatever and fat content whatever you want right right might be very different from somebody else's skin exactly. and so uh so then we're dealing with a lot of unknowns and that you know even though we're we're sort of we can pat ourselves on the back and say hey we're studying something in a more in sort of natural context we also have to realize that it comes at a cost the cost of sort of having less defined uh, conditions and, and mm-hmm. lack of understanding of certain things. And so it's a balance, right? So there's no like right or wrong, but we have to understand the, the, the pros and cons of each of these approaches very carefully. Right. Okay. That's a really good answer. Yeah. It would so it'd be definitely more of a focus though, probably on activity that, like you were saying, rather than just um, species at least. Sure. Right. Sure. Like in, in, in any of these locations. Probably. Okay. Interesting. Um, what about other species that you touched on that a little bit with viruses, phages? Um, do you think that they're involved in any way in these, this kind of signaling as well? Fungi? Um, I mean, I know there are viral biofilms as well, things like that. Um, so do you think that it's possible that bacteria are also communicating with these other um, kinds of microbes? Yeah, I mean, we already showed in, in at least one paper that, that you know, uh, uh, two evolutionary, very distant species of bacteria right. can, can communicate electrically 
uh, Pseudomonas and Bacillus. So one is gram positive, one is gram negative. So they're very different types of bacteria. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, is sort of a, an indication that this is not just limited to a single species of bacteria, which would have been sort of a little bit, uh, uh, actually, that would have been great too, because then you're like, <laughs> oh, how, how, how can it be that only one species evolved this thing, right? So that would, right. Be, that would be kind of interesting on its own also. Uh, but maybe not surprisingly, it does not appear to be the, the, the case. And so, um, right. but, you know, we are still sort of at the, the ground level, if you will, uh, right, and, and some of these discoveries are still relative, quite recent in terms of scientific years, if you will. Uh, so they're they're the opposite of dog years; they they go extra slow, and so um, so we're still be basically beginning, right? We're still in the trenches of of uncovering some basic things, and so it, time will tell, uh, you know, how many other species and which ones do, which ones don't, and uh, you know uh, right. what that all means. But again, it goes back to to sort of the earlier question that you asked how. How widespread could this be? Has something to do with you know the fact that we know that the membrane potential is sort of a very fundamental property of any cell. Right. Yeah. Any living organism that's a cell, right, yeah. has a, a potential across its membrane, uh, and and so uh, it's a it's a very ancient uh, uh, sort of physiological process, and um, so it wouldn't be necessarily shocking in hindsight if we if we would find that it's uh, that you know different species and things like that and even across maybe different kingdoms there can be like sort of communication cool agreed yeah um could you tell me a little bit more about you know how you integrate mathematical models with the study of the actual you know biofilms in order to get these results sure i mean so so, so to us the mathematical models are actually quite important so um right. uh, you know we we use it uh, for for sort of two purposes really uh, one is to to come up with sort of a very specific hypotheses, right? So yes. the nice thing with with mathematical modeling is that that uh, you can really make predictions that are hypothesis driven, more than hypothesis driven, that are sort of mathematically supported. Yes. And so uh, that is very important because not only does it mean that you can you can really sort of define the question that you're asking really well, right. but once you have experimental results, you can also interpret them. Uh, in the using the framework of sort of a mathematical model in a way that is much more powerful, and the the other reason that we're doing it is is that it allows us to identify sort of uh, concepts, and concepts are very important because um, mm -hmm. you know a lot of people are interested in what is the gene, what is the protein doing something, right? And uh, those are like tangible objects, and so people really like working on those things, right? Uh, concepts. Are, are by definition they're sort of intellectual things, right? Right. But, so that means that they're not tangible in the sense that you can't like touch it. You can say, "Here's the protein," kind exactly. of thing, right? But right. concepts are very important because they allow us to bridge across very different types of systems. Yes. So we can, if we can use the same mathematical description to describe processes happening in very different organisms. That is actually meaningful. You can say so. There seems to be something uh, uh, that is that is sort of shared between two systems, and then you can say so. Are they trying to solve a similar problem? And mm -hmm. maybe uh, you know there's some kind of evolutionary information there. So so identifying those types of concepts, I think, is very relevant for sort of a, a, a greater thinking in terms of uh, evolutionary perspectives and and uh, those types of uh, sort of processes where you try to find connections between things that appear on the surface to be 
different, right? Like, right. like bacteria and neurons. You know, if I told you 10 years ago that they might <laughs> have similar things that people would, you know, to get you out of the room kind of that you're crazy. <laughs> right. Um, uh, right. But so now we can see actually that we can use the mathematical formulism that was originally developed in the 1950s by the brilliant Hodgkin and Huxley team. Okay. That, that got a Nobel Prize for, for, for the work. Right. In, where they identified sort of a mathematical framework and they figured out how that basically action potentials and neurons are driven by potassium and sodium flux right. across the membrane. And we were able to show that you can use that same mathematical framework to explain and, and, and sort of make predictions uh, regarding uh, electrical signaling in bacterial communities. And so I think that's always very powerful when you can, when you can demonstrate uh, sort of mathematically that these two processes are actually related. Yes, absolutely. Um, very cool. Um, yeah, with that being said, how have these results been received? It seems like pretty enthusiastically, but do you have trouble um, communicating this to, for example, people who have maybe studied microbes in isolation for a long time? Um, no, I, no I, I mean, communicating work is, is, I think, is sort of a very, very important part of being a scientist because uh, right. knowledge not shared is like knowledge that doesn't exist almost. Right? Pretty like much. If, if only guess. one person knows about it, that, that doesn't help anybody. Exactly. And so communication is critical. And so when you're communicating, you know, you, you, you cannot blame the audience for not getting something. You have to make sure that, that you figure out a way that you can communicate your results so that anybody can appreciate it. And so we take great pride in, in trying to make sure that we write our papers in a way that, that are accessible, even though obviously we're having sort of a, to deal with sort of a, the fact that we're communicating technical scientific work. So there's always challenges, but we really try hard to make our figures and texts really as accessible as we can so that uh, you know, and hopefully many people could, could pick it up and at least get sort of the gist of it. Yes. And, and so um, uh, I, I think that that does pay off in the sense that I think if you're able to, to explain why it's important, how it works in a, in a way that, that sort of uh, uh, is accessible, then I think people will appreciate it and people will sort of, uh, because, you know, then they understand it. And if they understand it, then at least they can make their own judgment whether or not they think this is critical or not. The right. dangerous thing is if they don't understand it and then they're just confused and then confusion leads to frustration. Right. And then at that point, uh, it's very difficult to sort of uh, come to a, a judgment based on, you know, or, or, or sort of decide if something is you know, noteworthy or not if you can't even understand it, right? Exactly. Uh, and so our first goal is to make sure that it's accessible and then hopefully people will be able to reach their own decisions. I think you did a great job with that. I, I actually thought that when I was reading the paper, the way you write, you can understand it. And then you put the math more towards the end so that you can go read it and you can more, you can, you know, you can get it at different levels of complexity. It's really cool. Well, we try to make sure that you can read the paper. And then if, you, yeah, if you're exactly. sort of interested, then there's more meat where you can exactly. sort of sink your teeth into, right? Uh, right? Uh, so, so we, we try to appeal to both, both uh, groups of readers, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but we don't want to sacrifice sort of readability uh, and, and so we, we try to, you know, I, I'm sure there's, there's still much room for improvement, but we try. No, I think you did a, a really good job. Um, cool. Um, let's see what else. Um, maybe I'll talk a tiny bit more. Can you just tell me kind of the highlights of what you found just again to go over for the readers? Um, basically the fact that these microbes are using ion potentials and then maybe a little bit about the time sharing of nutrients and the way they're able to coordinate that behavior. Sure. I mean, so, so, so basically, you know, you, you mentioned sort of those, those three papers that, that you like that. So, so the first one was sort of really the discovery that uh, potassium ion channels are utilized in, in, in bacteria that reside within these biofilm communities to uh, uh, send long-range electrical 
that allows them to coordinate the metabolism. And, and sort of that was, that was sort of a very uh, exciting finding that, that set many other things into motion. And then the next one that we talked about was where we realized that these electrical signals could extend beyond a single sort of community. And if there's uh, planktonic motile cells swimming around, because a lot of biofilms actually exist in sort of aqueous environments. And so it's not, mm-hmm. it's not crazy to think there might be some other cells that are swimming around that are not part of the community, maybe even a different species. Right. And so we wanted to know what would happen and, and sort of the fact that, that bacterial motility is driven by proton motor force. That's, that's, a, that's basically the cells utilize a electrochemical gradient across the membrane to right. generate the energy required to churn these things called flagella, which are these swirly things that allow bacteria to swim. Right. Um, uh, we said, well, if, if you have electrical signals, maybe they would have an effect on this process of utility. And, and indeed, we saw that, that uh, electrical signals can direct and attract motile cells from a distance to the community. And that's kind of interesting because now you can, you can see how electrical signaling can, can turn a single species community. Once it starts signaling, if there's a different species out there, you can actually recruit those cells into the community. Yeah. And, and so that was sort of an interesting finding. And then mm-hmm. uh, we followed that up by saying, okay, so if there's like two communities, right, right? Uh, instead of sort of cells swimming around one community, what if you had two physically separated communities at some distance, not super far away, but, you know, uh, right. with respect to the size of a bacteria, some significant distance? Yeah. Um, uh, what would happen? And so we, we saw that, that what happens is that the, these, these types of communities, if they're sharing the same environment, uh, they, they become coupled, uh, meaning they can, they can sense each other, so to speak, mm-hmm. and uh, through two ways. So one is this electrical signaling, which tends to uh, basically communicate metabolic stress. And so that, that, that makes these two communities uh, be in sync. Right. But there's also competition between two communities, meaning if you have, for example, limited resources, there's only enough to sustain maybe one or the other, but not both. Right. We, we realized that what, what, the, what the communities were doing is basically modulating uh, the coupling between them. So mm-hmm. that they could transition to different type of dynamics where they could take turns consuming the limited resources. Yeah. And that's a concept known in, in sort of, you know, uh, vacation homes and other things. Right. And, and cloud computing, <laughs> you know, it's very popular in cloud computing and other yeah. types of things where it's called uh, resource sharing, right? So, right? so what you're doing is basically if anybody has kits and there's one toy, two kits, you know, you take turns, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. And so, turns out this strategy is, is being employed by these bacteria, and that's very exciting because it's a it's a it's a dynamic process. And when you're talking with with sort of vacation homes and stuff like that, it's sort of um, uh, it's actually a non-trivial thing, right? Or, or right. cloud computing because somebody has to set up sort of uh, you know a calendar or something. And say, okay, you take you take like August, I take June, exactly. kind of stuff. So usually there, <laughs> it, it, it appears to require some kind of higher organization or somebody who coordinates things. But what's interesting here is that these bacteria naturally do this through their dynamic system behavior. And so they can naturally transition from being in phase where they're competing a lot, uh, and that's okay if, if there's enough nutrients, to then switching to this timeshare behavior when the nutrients are low. And this is a process where there is nobody from the outside, so to speak, telling which colony to do what. This is mm-hmm. a process that naturally emerges 
through the interaction between these communities, and then they can basically cope with uh, very limited nutrient resources. And so I, we thought that that was a very sort of uh, interesting finding that, that bacteria are capable of e executing these sort of um, uh, what appear to be non-trivial strategies to coping with uh, limited resources. Yeah, it's extremely interesting. Do you think we've underestimated bacteria, you know, uh, somewhat? Do you think that they have more going on? <laughs> it seems that, you know, with each new kind of study, this and many others now, that it seems that bacteria are able to do much more than we thought before. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm always amazed by any living organism. I think I think they're you know the, just the fact that that and, and in particular bacteria, right? In the sense that if you if you if you realize how long these guys have been around, right? Right? They they've they've survived mass extinction one after yep. the other, uh, not just the one with the dinosaurs, but but the with the earlier one were actually even more. Uh, uh, sort of species disappeared. Right. Uh, so, so they really been through stuff, and and they're extremely resilient. And, and they are, yeah. they've they've been able to colonize from from the Arctic to the depths of the ocean. Yep. So there's clearly something about sort of these these simple organisms and their ability to be so resilient and, and adaptable. And and I think that I find that fascinating. Uh, you know, like uh, you know, sometimes right. I go to the East Coast and I have trouble. Adjusted, right? <laughs> and, 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 and so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm impressed by, by these bacteria's uh, capabilities. And, and I think that uh, I'm, I'm sure there's still lots of things that we don't know. And, and uh, I think it'll be a fun future to figure out what else they can do. It, it will. Yeah, I agree. Um, I know this is jumping a little ahead, but do you see any possible therapeutic interventions based off this kind of findings in the future in the sense that maybe you could interrupt a signal? Um, and sort of get in the way of biofilm communication, and let's say in a, you know, illness in which biofilm might be contributing. Sure, I mean, you know, it, it, we we really like sort of uh, uh, doing basic research and then and then letting the findings sort of lead us to to those directions if yeah. if there is something to be to be had. And and I think that uh, we are certainly not blind to to the possibility that our discoveries may have also sort of biomedical uh, implications. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're, we are sort of interested in those those avenues as well. Um, we're trying to be uh, careful because, you know, you don't want to sort of put blinders on and just sort of focus on one thing because uh, then you can really miss a lot of cool things going on. Sure. Um, but we but we do realize that obviously, you know, biofilms are sort of a, a major public uh, health threat. Uh, you know, biofilms are responsible for the majority of uh, infections in clinics. Right. And, uh, yeah. you know, there's there's there's, you know, people dying and, and, right. and billions of dollars. Uh, and, and so, yes, we, we're, 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 yeah. we're, we're sort of aware of these problems. And, and uh, we think that there might be some things we can contribute in the future. And so um, uh, we're, we're slowly uh, sort of uh, trying to explore those avenues as well. Very interesting. I guess that would be a good next question is where, what are you going to do next? I mean, in generally speaking. Uh, we're still trying to sort of understand some of the basics, right? So, so yeah. um, we, we're we're still very intrigued by uh, sort of what these uh, sort of this new form of communication between bacteria, what else it can do, right. and 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 uh, and at the other side, sort of at the smaller scale, we're we're also trying to understand. Uh, in addition to sort of ion channels, there's actually it turns out uh, we think like other genes and proteins that are playing regulatory roles and so forth, mm. just, you know. And, and so we're, we're very interested in sort of uh, diving both uh, 
in, in the direction of more detailed depth and, and figuring things out in, in sort of more rigorous ways. Uh, and also at the same time, trying to sort of uh, go in the other direction and see, uh, you know, how widespread is it and, and what other sort of interesting behaviors can come out of this. And, and I think there's there's definitely uh, more things that, that, that uh, probably, hopefully, are going to sort of uh, lead to unexpected findings. Right. And is there a growing community of researchers who are getting interested in this or are you guys working a little bit in, alone? No, I think there's actually a growing community. Uh, in, in fact, uh, uh, we're going to have uh, for the first time sort of a, a session. At, at, uh, so, so there's the Biophysical Society, which, which has been around for a long time, the American Biophysical Society, and they have an annual meeting every year. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time, there's going to be a session on sort of uh, uh, biofilm electrophysiology in, in San Francisco in, in February. Great. Uh, and so there's going to be speakers from, from all kinds of different institutions and from around the world that are going to uh, come together and talk about sort of their findings. So I think there's definitely a community that's building. And okay. I think this field has a lot of potential. Uh, right. It's obviously a very small field only at its infancies. And, and we're really trying to pioneer this field by, by in, and trying to bring other people in. And, yeah. and so, um, uh, you know, create a community that is, uh, uh, you know, sort of connected and, and, and people know each other and can help each other. Uh, and I think that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we weren't like the first ones to even sort of think about memory potential and bacteria and so forth. But I think uh, now there's more of a, a sort of a, a larger group of people. And I think sharing these exciting findings with others hopefully is drawing in more people. And, and so we think that um, uh, it's, it's definitely going to be sort of a hopefully fun and expanding field in the future. So we're not, we're not alone. We're not alone. Good. (laughs) That's great. You know, uh, going back, you know, some of the early studies that you cite in your papers are from the seventies. So there was an awareness already at that time, right? That there was, you know, some membrane potential stuff going on. Is that correct? Say again, sorry. Um, Some of your, you know, the papers you cite in your papers come from the 70s. So there was already at that time, you know, an awareness at least that there was some membrane potential stuff and things going on with bacteria, correct? Oh, yeah. We're, we're, you know, as they like to say, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? So so smart smart people existed before we came along. (laughs) Absolutely. And and there's been beautiful studies done, uh, as I said, from going all the way to to Hodgkin Huxley. And in fact... I would go back as far as uh, Luigi Galvani in, mm-hmm. in the 18th century, who, who did yeah. this beautiful experiment where he cut the frog in half right. and used electrodes and made the legs twitch, yes. which, which right. really sort of freaked people out and led to books like <laughs> Frankenstein, where the monster is brought to life with electrical currents and stuff. So right. uh, this field goes back hundreds of years, if you will. Uh, and so obviously a, a lot more people work on uh, electrophysiology and those types of properties uh, related to the brain, because that's sort of obviously sort of a very important organ, and everybody's very. It's it's easy to see the relevance, right? Right. Uh, but but people have have uh, sort of looked, as I said, from from plants to to fungi to uh, to bacteria, uh, uh, because it is such an ancient property. So so the fact that cells utilize an electrochemical potential across the membrane is as DNA itself, and so. Um, you know, when, when you think about it from that perspective, obviously there's been lots of people in the back, way back, you know, as I said, even hundreds of years ago, that have sort of started to put things together and, and done some very elegant studies here and there. We're, we're just sort of 
adding to that literature. Definitely. Well, yeah. Um, so let's say you were uh, talking to someone who wanted to go into, I guess, microbiology, or at least they wanted to study biofilms. I feel like in the past, we would have looked for someone who was good at, you know, culturing uh, microbes in a dish or something. Now it seems like you would want a background in physics, math. <laughs> what would you tell someone, you know, a young student to sort of, what kind of skill set would you tell them to try to get to be able to best study these kind of concepts? Yeah, I, I think one of the best skill set is, is sort of, uh, you know, you, you have to first learn how to think like a scientist, mm -hmm. uh, because that is a that is sort of a, a, a process. Once you understand how that works, then then you can work on anything. Right. Uh, and, and, and sort of that, I think, is one of the most important things you can learn is, is sort of what it means to be a scientist, how is science actually done. And, and then I think in terms of sort of a more concrete skill set, I think the, the more diverse, the better. I think. If right. you have a, a unique background and, and you have done things that everybody else has not done, then maybe you can in the future see things from a different right. perspective and you might you might make sort of different findings. I, I'm sure the fact that I'm you know I have I was trained sort of uh, and I've done stuff with electrophysiology and so forth as a graduate student uh, probably allowed me to to sort of you know think about things a little bit differently. Exactly. And so maybe that, that wasn't a bad thing, right? right. So, um, so it's very difficult to, to sort of say here's a specific skill set, but I can say in general, not mm -hmm. just for, for microbiology, but in general, the future is, is, is clear in the sense that um, you know, we're, we're heading in a direction where being able to, to sort of uh, communicate uh, in terms of um, sort of a mathematical language and, and understanding large data sets and yeah. analysis and so forth, that's, that's only going to get, you know, so more and more. That's, that's not going away. Exactly. And so I think having sort of a, a no fear of computers and software <laughs> and, and, yeah. and mathematics and physics, I think is actually going to be important because, again, these boundaries are blurring. It's the, the days where biologists would, would be sort of people that just, you know, other people's art would just walk around and collect leaves and stuff. That, that's yeah. gone, right? <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. So, so yes, I think... Right. Yeah, I think being being interdisciplinary is sort of very yeah. important. Right, exactly. And, you know, within, I kind of see, I get that there's a focus on interdisciplinary research now where you kind of have someone who's a physicist collaborate with someone who's a microbiologist. And that's great too, but it seems that people like you that have more skill sets themselves, or, you know, have a little bit of more exposure to different fields themselves, exactly can look at a problem with the most fresh eyes, which is interesting to me. Um, so yeah, I wish I had a physics background, put it that way. Jealous. Um, anyway, well, cool. Is there anything you want to add? Um, I, I don't want to keep you too long, but this is, um, all fascinating stuff. Would you like to leave people with any other message of kind of what you've found or what you're most excited about? Um, no, I think we, we, we covered a lot of stuff. I think, you know, that they'll hopefully we'll have uh, more stuff to talk about in the future. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, but uh, no, I'm 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 happy that 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 you know uh, people like you and others are sort of taking note and, and and are finding it interesting. I think it 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 really helps to to sort of uh, in this day and age. I think it's very important for for people in science and people in in science communication and, and so forth to really uh, make work accessible and reach out to the public. Yes, because I think the more we educate our general public. And, and try to help them understand what science is and how it works, yep. uh, the better it is for our society. Yes. Uh, uh, I'm sure you understand my message.
That was Gural Sul on biofilm electrical communication. This is Amy Proa with Microminded. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to Michael Kirkpatrick for his help with editing. See you soon again on the blog.